You are listening to The Loop Podcast, a project in plastic surgery innovation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Loop Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Morgan Martin, and I am joined today by our guest host, Dr. Barry Fairchild, who is an independent resident at UT Houston. So welcome, Barry. Hi, Morgan. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to join you today. So a little bit about me. I grew up moving all over the United States, but I ended up in Houston for general surgery training. And I decided to stay for plastics because I love it. Um, My interests are pretty broad, but I especially am interested in breast reconstruction and I'm hoping to stay in Houston for practice. That's awesome. So I'm glad to hear that. Today's episode is an introduction to eyelids, and we will discuss all the relevant anatomy and try to break down some of the basics as much as possible. So for our listeners out there, if you want to follow along, our references for this review are from Upper Eyelid Reconstruction, an article from the journal Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery. Also, we took some information from the textbook Gravin Smith's Plastic Surgery and also the textbook Review of Plastic Surgery by Dr. Donald Buck. So let's get started. All right, Barry, can you review surface anatomy and the lamellar structures for me? Sure, Morgan. So first, I like to think about the skin or the surface structure around the eye. There's the superficial skin anatomy includes the brow, the upper lid, the lower lid, and the mid face. In the upper and lower eyelids, there's several structures, including the skin, subcutaneous tissue, orbicularis oculi muscle, submuscular areolar tissue, a fibrous layer that consists of the orbital septum and the tarsal plate, retroseptal fat pads, lid retractors, and conjunctiva. But this is pretty cumbersome to remember. So for this reason, and for conceptual purposes, the eyelid is divided into two main layers, and there's a septum between those layers. So there's an anterior and a posterior lamella. The anterior lamella is made up of skin and the orbicularis oculi muscle, while the posterior lamella includes the tarsal plate and the conjunctiva. And then remember, the septum is between these. Sometimes the septum is referred to as the middle lamella. Can you tell us about the canthi? Yes. So the medial and lateral canthi are important structures in normal eyelid function and also bony fixation. So they represent the confluence of the orbicularis muscle, the torsal plate, eyelid retractors, orbital septum, and the cheek ligaments. The medial canthus represents a fixed point fulcrum that is necessary for eyelid function. It is a complex structure that consists of an anterior and posterior reflection of the medial canthal tendon that envelops the lacrimal sac. This complex anatomic interplay provides the mechanism for the lacrimal pump. The lateral canthus, I like to think of as a support structure. So the lateral canthus inserts posterior to the lateral orbital rim, and it pulls the eyelid towards the globe. The lateral canthus allows for bony stabilization of the eyelid during movement. The lateral canthal tendon provides dynamic support by connecting the tarsal plates to Whitnall's tubercle along the lateral orbital rim. It consists of anterior and posterior fibrous attachments of the tarsal plate and fibers of the pretarsal orbicularis. Awesome. Also, so analysis of an acquired defect should include evaluation of the anterior lamella, 
the posterior lamella, and also the medial and lateral canthi to facilitate reconstruction because all of these are very important structures. That's a great point. Um, so it's also important to know the normal lid positions so we can identify the positions that are abnormal. The upper lid extends from the lid margin to the brow, while the lower lid extends from the lid margin to the malar fold. Also, think about the lid position relative to the limbus. The upper lid sits two millimeters below the superior limbus, and the lower lid sits at the inferior limbus during forward gaze. Okay, Barry, I always get so confused what it means when they say limbus. Can you tell me what this is? Sure, Morgan. So when you think about an eye, you have a colored part or the iris and then the conjunctiva, which is the white around the iris. That junction between the white and the colored portion is the limbus. All right, that makes it way more easy to understand. So now let's move on to talking about the crease. So the upper eyelid crease, so that is formed by the dermal insertion of the levator aponeurosis to the orbital septum. And the tarsal plate, so this is a fibrous structure that provides support for the eyelid. In the upper eyelid, it measures 25 millimeters in length is one millimeter thick and has a maximal central height of 10 millimeters. The tarsal plate is centralized over the mid pupillary line in childhood, but then once you get older with aging, it migrates laterally. Along with the conjunctiva, the tarsal plates form the posterior lamella. Great. Morgan, do you know the location of the supratarsal crease in a Caucasian eyelid? Yes. So in Caucasian eyelids, it's eight to nine millimeters from the lid margin in men and nine to 11 millimeters in women. Can you tell me about the Asian eyelid? Where is that supratarsal crease? Sure. In Asian eyelids, it's important to remember that the supratarsal crease is only two to three millimeters from the lid margin. So sometimes this is referred to as having no supratarsal crease. Can you tell me why there's a difference in the Caucasian and the Asian eyelid? In Asian eyelids, the levator aponeurosis fuses more caudally with the orbital septum, and this is compared to the Caucasian eyelid. All right, now the pretarsal space. This is the area superior to the eyelid margin, and by our eyelid margin, we mean like where the lashes are, that literally the edge of the eyelid. So it is the area superior to the eyelid margin where the skin is adherent to the tarsal plate. Next, the orbital sulcus. So this is the space between the superior orbital rim and the upper eyelid crease. And loss of the sulcus can be seen with relaxation of the upper septum or herniation of the preaponeurotic orbital fat pads. Now, Barry, tell me about the eyelid skin. Sure. So the eyelid skin is the thinnest skin in the body. It's less than one millimeter, and it's especially thin in the medial aspect of the upper eyelid. At the eyelid margin, the tarsal plates are tightly adherent to the skin. And then beneath the pretarsal skin over the canthal ligaments, remember that there's no fat. The fat is absent. And this increases the mobility, which also increases redundancy with aging. Awesome. So let's talk about the eyelid muscles. Can you tell me about both protractors and retractors? Yes. First, there's protractors and retractors, referring to the muscles that 
close the eye and open the eye. Protractors are those that close the eye. The orbicularis muscle is a protractor. It's divided into three components, pretarsal, preceptal, and orbital. The pretarsal and preceptal orbicularis are each divided into a deep layer and a superficial layer, both medially and laterally. The deep pretarsal and deep preceptal orbicularis insert on Whitnell's tubercle, laterally within the orbital rim. And Riolan's muscle, so this represents a strip of pretarsal muscle and forms the gray line of the eyelid, which is important for alignment of full thickness defects. All right, now tell me about those retractors. Sure. So remember, retractors are opening the eye. In the upper eyelid, the eyelid retractor muscles include the levator palpebrae superioris and Mueller's muscles. The levator palpebrae superioris is really the workhorse. It originates from the lesser wing of the sphenoid and extends anteriorly to Whitnall's ligament. We'll talk a little bit more about Whitnall's ligament in a minute. The levator muscle extends inferiorly and transitions to a dense aponeurosis, which fuses with the orbital septum anteriorly prior to attaching to the superior tarsal plate posteriorly. So this levator muscle, so this is the principal upper lid retractor, and it is innervated by the oculomotor nerve. So then we also, in the retractor group, we have Mueller's muscle. This is made of smooth muscle, and it originates from the undersurface of the levator muscle and inserts on the superior margin on the tarsal plate. And this will add about two to three millimeters of lid elevation and is innervated by the sympathetic nervous system. Barry, tell me about the lower lid, because this can get pretty confusing. Sure, Morgan. So... In the lower lid, the lower lid has retractors as well. Again, what muscles are opening the eye? So the capsulopalpebral fascia is the extension of fascia from the inferior rectus muscle. And this serves as the retractor of the lower lid. The capsulopalpebral fascia inserts on the inferior border of the lower tarsal plate in the inferior fornix. Okay, so the most confusing of all, Whitnall's ligament. So what is this? (laughs) Good question. So Whitnall's ligament is posterior to the levator aponeurosis. This ligament inserts on the superior tarsal plate, and it attaches superiorly to the levator muscle. The important thing to remember about Whitnall's ligament and probably what you're going to be tested on is that Whitnall's ligament changes the direction of the levator muscle pull to a superior and inferior direction. Thanks, Mary. That really helps clarify something that's always so confusing for me. All right, let's talk a little bit about the orbital septum. So the orbital septum is a layer of connective tissue that separates the anterior and the posterior lamella. And it is posterior to the orbicularis muscle and forms the anterior border to the orbital contents. In the upper lid, the septum attaches to the tarsal plate via the levator aponeurosis. And in the lower lid, this is via the capsulopalpebral fascia. The orbital septum is also continuous with the periosteum of the orbital rim via the arcus marginalis. All right, Barry, what about those fat pads? Right. So the fat pads 
I think can get somewhat confusing. So it's important to compartmentalize these fat pads. We'll start with the upper eyelid. So in the upper eyelid, there's two fat compartments. The preaponeurotic fat pads, which are postseptal, remember the septum being your middle lamellae, these fat pads are anterior extensions of the orbital fat, and they're divided into two compartments, the nasal or central and the medial compartment. The nasal fat pad, remember, is broad and dark yellow. Do you know why it's that darker yellow color? I believe this is due to high levels of carotenoids. Nailed it. Great. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So remember, nasal fat pads, dark yellow and broad. And on the other hand, the medial fat pads are that pale yellow color. Then what divides the nasal and medial fat pads is the trochlea of the superior oblique. Finally, the lacrimal gland is located lateral to the fat pads. Remember the lacrimal gland, it's a little firmer, it's pink, and it may also become prominent with age, but the lacrimal gland is not a fat pad. Finally, Elzer's fat pad can be found anterior to the lateral canthus, and this can be useful as an anatomic landmark. Awesome. So now talking about the lower lid fat pads. So there are three, and the three retroceptal fat pads are lateral, central, and nasal. The inferior oblique muscle separates the medial and the central fat pads. Now, the arcuate expansion from the capsulopalpebral fascia, this separates the medial and lateral fat pads. So again, that can be a little bit confusing. So medial and central separated by the inferior oblique muscle, and then that arcuate expansion separates medial and lateral fat pads. All right, next. So you may often hear roof and soof. So the roof, so this is retroorbicularis oculi fat, R-O-O. F, and this is in the upper lid and is preceptal. And the SOOF or SOOF suborbicularis oculi fat, this is in the lower lid and is the preceptal fat. Okay, Barry, now talk to me about the blood supply and lymphatics. Got it. So the arterial supply to the eyelids is primarily from branches of the ophthalmic artery. And we know that this is from the internal carotid. But the eyelids also receive supply from the external carotid artery via the angular artery, the superficial temporal artery, and the maxillary artery. In the upper lid, there are two main arcades, while in the lower lid, there's only one arterial arcade. And then onto veins, the superior palpebral vein courses parallel to the eyelid margin with an anastomosis between the angular vein and the supraorbital vein. Finally, the lymphatic drainage of the upper eyelid is to the preauricular node, while the lymphatic drainage of the lateral canthus is to the submandibular nodes. And as we know, it's important for evaluation of the appropriate lymph node basins for evaluation and treatment of malignancies such as squamous cell carcinoma, melanoma, and sebaceous carcinoma. Well, good to know. I haven't even thought about that. All right, next we're going to talk about innervation. So the sensory innervation of the upper eyelid is divided between the supratrochlear nerve medially in a combination of the supraorbital nerve and the lacrimal nerve laterally. The facial nerve, remember that's cranial nerve seven, supplies the motor innervation to the eyelid through the zygomatic and buncal branches. And so recent data actually suggests that the buccal branches have a more significant contribution to motor function. So remember, so this is going to be like the orbicularis oculi, cranial nerve seven. 
Also remember that the levator muscle is innervated by cranial nerve three and Mueller's muscle is innervated by the sympathetic nervous system. All right, let's talk about the lid layers. Let's start with superficial going to deep. So lid layers, superficial to deep. Going in order in upper lid, skin, orbicularis oculi muscle, roof, septum, orbital fat, which we have central and medial compartments, levator muscle, Mueller's muscle, and then conjunctiva. And then in the lower lid, we have skin, orbicularis oculi muscle, the SUF, the orbital septum, the orbital fat. Remember, this is lateral, central, and medial. There's three compartments in the lower lid, capsulopalpebral fascia, Mueller's muscle, and conjunctiva. That is so important to memorize that, especially when you're in the lower lid and you change from transcutaneous to transconjunctival. It's so confusing. So if you can just remember and memorize all of these layers in order, it can be very helpful. Great point, Morgan. All right. So now let's talk about eyelid evaluation and specific terminology. Eyelid ptosis. So this is how much the upper limbus is covered by the lid. So normal is only one to two millimeters covered by the lid. Mild is two millimeters. Moderate is three millimeters and severe is greater than four millimeters. Okay. Tell me about lid laxity. So lid laxity is the relative relaxation of lid support structures and resting tone of the lid. It's the distance the lid can be distracted from the globe. So think about pulling your eyelid away from the globe. Mild lid laxity is if you can distract that lid one to two millimeters. Moderate is two to six millimeters and severe is six millimeters, which is pretty far. Great. So lid tone, this is graded according to the snapback test. And so the snapback test, this is when you distract the lid or pull it out, hold for a few seconds, and then you release it. And at this point, you're going to measure the time between release and return to resting position. So normal is immediate return to resting position. Grade one is two to three seconds. Grade two is four to five seconds. Grade three is greater than five seconds and grade four, this is when it never returns to normal. All right. What about globe position? Globe position is the position of the anterior border of the globe relative to the lateral orbital rim. We measure this using a Herthel exophthalmometer. The important measurements here are knowing normal from enophthalmus and exophthalmus. A normal globe position is 15 to 18 millimeters between the globe and the lateral orbital rim. Enophthalmus, or think about that globe being set back from the orbital rim, is less than 14 millimeters, while exophthalmus or proptosis which you might think of with somebody with a thyroid disorder is greater than 18 millimeters. Great. So now for levator function. So the distance that the upper lid retracts when the globe moves from inferior gaze to upward gaze. And so normally you would have excellent function and this is 12 to 15 millimeters. Good function is eight to 12 millimeters, fair five to seven millimeters, poor two to four millimeters, and then none, obviously zero millimeters. Great. 
So I'm going to talk about tear production and tear production. You know, all of these tests are important when you're thinking about obviously operating on somebody specifically, if you're thinking about doing a blepharoplasty, you want to see if they have a baseline dry eye. In order to do this, you can look at what's called a Shermer test. The Shermer test measures the tear production. So in order to perform the Shermer test, you're going to apply a topical anesthetic and then take a filter paper and place it in the lateral thirds of the lower lid. You then measure the level of the moisture in the filter paper over time. You're going to wait five minutes. So a normal tear production is if you have 15 millimeters of tear production along that paper. Borderline tear production is five to 10 millimeters. And then hyposecretion, which means a patient has dry eyes, is less than five millimeters. Great. That's really important to know. As she was saying, it's very important preoperatively because if you're going to operate on a patient for ptosis or blepharoplasty, if you remove some of that skin, you may actually be worsening their dry eyes. So something to always ask patient. All right. So next term, blepharoptosis or upper eyelid ptosis. So the etiology can be congenital involutional or senile can be from conditions such as Horner syndrome, myasthenia gravis, or even from chemodenervation. And this is when you get Botox and it gives you ptosis. <laughs> right. So, and that actually happened to me once. Um, oh no. <laughs> long time ago. All right. So the treatment for ptosis, if it happens because of the chemodenervation, you can give an alpha adrenergic agonist, and this is aproclonidine, and this stimulates that Mueller's muscle, which if you remember, adds a few millimeters of elevating the lid. And so if the levator muscle has been accidentally treated with Botox, you can elevate that Mueller's muscle to help with opening up the eye. What muscle can compensate for eyelid ptosis? So the frontalis muscles. Think about someone who has ptosis, probably has their eyebrows really high, contracting that frontalis muscle, resulting in a functional improvement of the visual fields. So whenever you're seeing a patient in clinic, make sure and examine them for eyebrow elevation. Great point. How about ectropion? What is ectropion? Ectropion. So this is when the eyelid turns outwards. This can lead to dryness, irritation, and even excessive tearing. And the excessive tearing, that's just because when the eyelid's not in the correct position, the tears are not going to go towards the lacrimal system and then will just start spilling over onto the face. Exactly. Now, what about entropion? Entropion is inward rotation of the eyelid margin. The problem with this is that the lashes, which lie along that margin, can actually rub against the cornea and conjunctiva and cause irritation or abrasions. Can you tell me what epiphora is? Sure. So epiphora is excessive tearing, and this can be due to an obstruction in the lacrimal drainage system. Or like I said earlier, you know, if it's ectropion or entropion, or for whatever reason you're having tearing, it's still called epiphora. All right. And next is epiblepharon, which this is something confusing to me, but it is an excessive amount of pretarsal skin and orbicularis muscle at the lower eyelid margin, causing cilia inversion with globe contact. And so remember, cilia is just Latin for eyelash. And also one way to remember this is the epiblepharon. This can be present at birth and is most commonly seen in babies that are either Asian, Hispanic, or Native American descent. Great. 
Blepharospasm is the uncontrolled eyelid muscle contraction. The treatment for blepharospasm is actually chemodenervation with Botox. Hyphema. So this is actually traumatic hemorrhage of the anterior chamber of the eye. And remember, this is an emergency. So call ophthalmology. <laughs> exactly. I think, I think that was on our, uh, I think that was on our in-service a couple of years ago. <laughs> so this yeah. is an emergency. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. So blepharochalasis, this is inflammation of the eyelid characterized by recurrent episodic painless eyelid swelling. And over time, this can lead to thin atrophic eyelids, levator aponeurosis, attenuation, and blepharoptosis, or as, again, upper eyelid ptosis. This is a rare inherited disorder. All right, so next term, dermatochalasis. So this is just loosening of the eyelid skin with fat protrusion. And then finally, chemosis. This is edema of the conjunctiva. Awesome. Well, that's it. Thanks, Barry, for helping me with this episode. I'm sure it will be very valuable to residents all over the world learning about eyelids and plexiglossy. Great. Thanks, Morgan. All right. For our listeners, stay tuned because I have planned multiple additional episodes reviewing the surgical principles, complications, and reconstructive options for eyelids. Make sure and subscribe to continue receiving this high-yield content and educational discussions from the Loop team. Also, follow us on Instagram to get in the loop. 